This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. This month, they asked Paul and Storm to help me say hi to John. John Roderick, Merlin Man on the Line, Super Train. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Oh, complicated. Oh, no. What happened? Well, complicated isn't always bad. No, no. What went well? Well, I wouldn't say it was going well. (laughs) Uh, It's raining today in Seattle, uh, and that is a good feeling. Um, That just feels right. So I'm pleased about that. But then uh, everything else is just a shit show. Really? Well, no. No. Come on. Now, Gus, you kidding me? Uh, you know what? A guy like me has seen a shit show or two, am I right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. This isn't your first shit show. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is um, school just ended, so so begins a, a, a summer of camps oh. uh, for my kid. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what we were thinking, but uh, right now she's at track camp. So she's at an outdoor stadium uh, on a day when it started raining. <laughs> Should uh, be a lot of wet track. Track camp? What is, what is her event? Oh, you know, I think it's going to be sitting and pouting probably. Uh, <laughs> the, the 10K sit and pout. I was super good at that event. <laughs> you know, luckily though, she's at an age where as long as, a, as somebody that she knows will be there, you know that age? Like where you're yeah. like, oh, well, I, can, I can put up with anything if my friend's going to be there. Yeah, I I figured out that the um my best event in cross country was manager. Oh, oh, manager, that's the euphemistic manager. You're the guy who picks stuff up. Uh, I didn't I wasn't even really very good at that. Uh <laughs> I was really good at standing somewhere on the on the race course and when every when my uh friends ran by going, "Pick it up. Good effort." Woo! Oh, that's good. You're like Go! Coach, yeah. coach in training, you're, and you're there to give people notes on their form? Uh, I didn't know enough about any of the sport uh, to ha- be able to comment on their form. I could just say, you know, pick it up and uh, power through. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just wanted friends. Yeah. <laughs> and I was bad at, uh, at making friends and having friends and also bad at running or mm. cross-country skiing. So. Listen, um, I hope you don't mind <laughs> if I just give you a note. You know, as a manager here, have, have you tried running faster? <laughs> the thing is, they could all run faster than me. So th- there was no reason any of them would listen to, you know, what it was, was my, uh, the girl that I liked ran cross country. Oh man. And, um, so I just wanted to be around her. And so I ran cross country, but you know, I had this habit of like stopping in the middle of the race and like climbing a tree to retrieve a bird's nest or, uh, just like often losing the course some, because I was all alone losing the path and then either running twice as far as everyone else or like running onto a dip, running like across a golf course or you, I mean, you I, were more creative about it. Yeah, I was not, I was not, uh, I was not purposeful. So in the end, it was agreed, sort of mutually agreed by everybody that if I was going to stick around, that I should probably just be the assistant manager. And, uh, and that worked great for me. I mean, I'm, as you know, I am made to assist and manage. 
So there's something I don't know. I, I in retrospect that I find so frustrating. It seems, it seems like there's an elephant in the room. At least when we were coming up, that you there's a little athlete inside of each person that just <laughs> needs to be yelled out. <laughs> you know, did, did you? My to, dad certainly. My dad certainly followed that prescription. BMOC. <laughs> <laughs> my dad would stand on the side of the court, basketball court, when I was in fifth grade. Fifth, now picture a fifth grader. Fifth grade. My dad is there at the games, and he's screaming at the ref. You're missing a good game here, ref. That was a foul. That was a foul. Ref. You know, and it was just like, I would have rather been anywhere. I read an article about this a couple weeks ago, and I saw so much of myself in this article, and I think it might have been written by like a veteran, like coach. But the person was like, you know, you know what you should do at your kids' events? Just sit there. Mm-hmm. Just, you don't. You don't. You don't need to yell anything at anybody. You don't even really need to yell at them. And like the thing is, you're embarrassing everyone. You're making everybody look so bad. Nobody thinks you look cool when you yell encouragement at your kid, or or you know, or uh, insults. Well, you know, there's a picture of my dad taken in probably 1928, uh, maybe maybe 29. And he's standing on on a beach, in um, in those kind of ankle high leather boots that you needed a special tool to lace. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know that much about uh, early 20th century foot footwear, but he's got boxing gloves on, and he's standing on the beach in like full on, come at me. Uh, he, he's like, what is he like five? No, he's nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, full on, you know, like come at me boxing pose. And the prospect, I mean, the last time I'd like to know the last time in America, a nine year old was given boxing lessons. <laughs> like, I'm sure that there, it still happens. I'm sure there are nine. Uh, there are definitely tons and tons and tons of nine year olds taking Taekwondo. But, but I think there are, there are a lot fewer nine year olds like lacing up in boxing gloves and just having a go at each other than there were in 1929. So I forgive my dad for all, all of that stuff because he couldn't possibly know that yelling at the ref wasn't helping. Right. He imagined that yelling at the ref was as integral a part of the game as, as any of the shooting or coaching. And, um, it's why my dad and I'm not kidding. So when I was a kid, of course, nobody, uh, nobody ever, nobody knew what to do with dads like that, or they, or they, the, everybody just assumed it. It made sense, just like smoking on airplanes. Uh, but by the time my dad was a grandfather uh, to my older brothers and sisters' kids, he actually was banned from attending his grandson's soccer games. You're kidding for yelling at the coach and he (laughs) he was incredulous and he thought it was a conspiracy of like these new parents who didn't understand how you know this new generation by which he meant the baby boomers who had gone soft and didn't know you know and were like getting their woodle feelings hurt because he's standing on the sidelines at a seven-year-old soccer game like yelling yelling foul <laughs> or or you know just yelling at the coach yelling at the opposite coach 
and and uh he you know there wasn't a he wasn't uh he wasn't mean about it or angry he was just that was the that that's was what how you he, did it's how you played games i think it's a, i think it's a, i think you're right i think it's a generational thing yeah so i never i mean when i was 10 i would have i i was mortified but you know when i got and when i got to be 20 i yelled at him about it a lot but by the time i was 30 i was like oh right he when he was nine, people were punching him in the face, and he was, you know, his father would sometimes put him in, a, in an ice-cold bathtub, a bathtub full of ice water, to toughen his spirit. Oh, my God. Uh, so, you know, like, I can't, I can't be mad at him, but boy, did I not want him yelling at my stupid basketball games, about which I cared not. Right, right. Right, like, whether we won or lost... Yeah, I'm. I, I. I was just like your daughter. I just was there because I wanted to be with my friends, and, um, honestly, like running up and down and throwing balls at each other was not was the worst possible uh, solution to the friend how to be with friends problem. <laughs> there, there are simpler ways that don't require shorts. <laughs> you know, so many. But I. But uh, after our last episode, I was reflecting on this a lot. Like, what did what did I want to do? What would I have been pleased to do? Ah, you know, I've been thinking about it too. I don't know what I would have been pleased to do. And would you have known? Would you have to, to use a sports analogy? Like, would you have known if the right pitch was coming to you? Would you even? Would you even know if it was something when you were at that age where they were calling you an asshole in school? Yeah. Like, would you even have known? Like, how this 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 week went really well because these like three things happened to put me on my path. Yeah. Right. I mean, chess club. No. Uh. Lord of the Rings Club? Not even really. There, I was it's called in the a guild, Lord of John. It's a guild. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings Guild, and we had very passionate feelings about the Dune Guild that sat on the other side of French class. But <laughs> always we with did, the spice. <laughs> but we did not. But that didn't give me a, that didn't give me that much relief. Um, if I if I if I reflect back into my daydreams. In seventh grade, what I was really hoping was that the Soviet Union would invade. You could you would and, finally be called into action. All of your expertise yes. on on airplanes and military procedures, yes. you would be you would be it would be a little bit like Ender's Game. Like you would be a savant. They would be like, we don't even need to train this kid. He is ready. He's got his. He literally has his own flight suit. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the pavement uh, song? We are underused. Yes. Yeah. That's my best impression of his singing. <laughs> we are underused. He's first like you're in a really weird church. <laughs> that being a pavement fan in the '90s was being in a weird church. <laughs> but uh, the first time I heard that song, I burst into tears. Oh God! The idea that we are underused, and and the and the implication. That there is that that you 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 will never find a use for yourself, really a proper like full use of yourself. Um, Honey, I'm a prize, and you're a catch, and we're a perfect match, like two bitter strangers. <laughs> Jesus, that still that still gives me shivers. Right? I mean, they, he was firing on all cylinders at that point, but but that I mean, and that was such a what we took away from that at the time was that we're losers or whatever, but but. But somehow, when I see people in the world who are perfectly utilized, oh yes, 
uh, it's I'm very seldom impressed either by the person or by the use that they have found for themselves. Right. Or, or the like, use kind of like the, like the kids. You'd, like I remember being insanely jealous of a kid from Japan who was younger than me, who had the highest IQ in the world. Mm. And I remember thinking, like, there's got to be some kind of jam up here. Like, how, how did this guy get the high IQ? You're always thinking, it's the same thing as any kind, anything involving, again, stage parents. Mm-hmm. We were like, does that kid really want to be out there tap dancing right now? Well, and that's the thing. Where is that kid with the high, who, who had the highest IQ in 1982? I'm going to uh, find out. Where is he now? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. this is what's so wonderful about knowing Ken Jennings, because Ken is one of these people that, uh, that performed on a, on a worldwide stage in a way equivalent to Marilyn Voss Savant, where it's just like, <laughs> oh, look at this. He is literally the smartest guy in the world because he won this game 70 plus times. And then you meet him and you're like, he is, he is genuinely like super bright and super good. He seems, he seems fast. He's, he's very fast. He's, and the thing, is, the thing that you would never suspect about him even though he is a total nerd, is that he has a he has an extent he has a knowledge like yours, like a, a knowledge across every. You cannot make an inside indie rock reference that he won't get. No you, kidding. Now yeah, that surprises me. It's amazing, right? And 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 you you cannot make like an inside reference really to very much that Ken won't uh, not just get, but also like turn into a pun and. Ah, so shoot, frustrating so frustrating up. and that was the thing when i first met sean nelson the same experience of just like oh he gets everything and it's great but you know but then being friends with him you realize like and and being the smartest being the world's smartest boy and not being in the smashing pumpkins ken jennings <laughs> wow nice pull is now <laughs> trying to you his know, name he, is william <laughs> He's make, Ken is making a living writing books and books of trivia and, and, and funny books and so forth. But like there wasn't – he was not uh, – they didn't put him up on a litter and carry him up and Princess Leia gave him a medal and then his problems were solved, right? He's, he is still underutilized. Right. And, and it's, uh, it's fascinating to think, you know, what if you, what if you wound him up? At, what, if he, what, if, what if DARPA – came and gave Ken Jennings an office. You know, I, God, I'm so sympathetic because this is, this is going to be my, my – makes me sound like such a loser because I am a loser. But, you know, it's like that feeling when you're younger and you're like, there's got to be something that I would be so great at. Like mm-hmm. I know – like you look at somebody who's like, okay, you're tall, you can run fast, mm-hmm. and you don't freak out on a team. Well, obviously, you're going to be a basketball player. Like there's such a path for you if you choose to take it. You may not choose to take it, but like there is a job that anybody with this kind of freakish combination of skills could have. And I'm like, I've got so many freakish combinations of skills. I've just never found the CIA job for me. But I, I was, know it's, it's got to be out there. There's some, I'm an analyst for something. I just don't know what yet. <laughs> well – so two things. I, I was reading in the newspaper today an article about General Wesley Clark, and uh, he was the general of the army and then uh, ran for president in 2004 or, or, you know, like tried to get the Democratic nomination and lost. And since that time, he has been um, – basically, he will join the board of directors of any penny stock company at, if you pay him enough. And so he's got some record where he was, he's been on the board of 18 companies and 16 of them have gone bankrupt. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's just like, really? Like he was valedictorian at West Point 
and a Rhodes Scholar and you know a four-star general and at a, and, and this is this gave me a cold chill to realize that it, at 60 years old he was like well maybe I'll just <laughs> maybe I'll just uh, be a fraud now for a while and make <laughs> he, some money could be on the board of a place called Grilled Cheese Truck Grilled Cheese Truck. Thank we, you. We'd love it if you joined us with the investment. The silver-haired Clark 70 says in a promotional video for a company called the Grilled Cheese Truck. He's pictured standing in front of a statue of a bald eagle and a replica of the Oval Office. We're going to be one of the fastest-growing young companies in America. Oh. <laughs> it's losing, losing money. Hasn't signed any veterans as franchisees. Oh, my God. There he is. I mean, yeah. you know, literally almost a retired... <laughs> Director of the CIA. It's your. It's almost your dream job. He could be your yeah. dream cautionary tale. Yeah, exactly. Hydroponic well, lettuce, John. A lot of money in hydroponic lettuce. So, the, tell you what, that is a booming industry. People like <laughs> fresh food, Merlin. Is it, you know what? It's getting harder and harder. You can't get enough fresh food in this country. Uh, uh, but the thing it occurred to me the other day, we have now crossed uh, 150 episodes of our program, and it's not. It's not fair to say that the program has become self-aware because it was always. Pretty self-aware. It's not artificially intelligent. It's naturally intelligent. But two things occurred to me. One, I I believe we have we've crossed a threshold where it is it is plausible that someone will be listening to this program after you and I have died. Oh, dude, a little early for that. Well, but this is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it may not be. It may, we, we have a legacy, whether we like it or not. It it probably will not be my grandkids because they are not going to give a shit. But somebody, somebody they'll be listening to space podcasts. They'll be. That's right. They'll be. Whew, they'll. You know what? They'll probably be listening to banjo music. It would have come back around. But, but you know, some researcher, some college nerd, some somebody at the at the you know. Because even though it feels to us like there are millions and millions of podcasts, too many podcasts, in fact, it's still very early days. We are one of the early ones that have achieved a, a lot of episodes. So, 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 that, so imagining that and imagining that, in fact, this conversation that we're having right now will one day be listened to by someone after we're dead and they will think to themselves, that is me that they're talking about, me, future person. Gave me pause. But then I realized that we, early podcasters, are ideal candidates for uh, colonization by AI developers. Hmm. Okay. Because if you are developing an artificial intelligence and you want that AI to be some, uh, interactive and human... Oh, you got to feed it lots of existing information to have it kind of bone up on the culture. Exactly. I get and you. I get you. A, a lot of broadcasters. 157, most, 157 is a lot of episodes, John. That's, that's a lot for an AI to gobble down. Well, but the thing is, AI, you know, using, uh, using Planck's theorem. Yes. An AI, yes, right? And Bernoulli's principle. An AI sure. will be able to just download that stuff just straight through. Well, Ultron got everything in like 10 seconds. <laughs> See, exactly. Mm -hmm. So... So, you know, a lot of broadcasters out there have a lot more hours of talking on the air than we do. But most of that is asking interview questions or, I mean, Garrison Killier is just reading some bullshit stories about fake people. Uh, 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 podcasters who are talking about, t talking to one another about each other and themselves are this like very ripe data set 
in so many ways because you get obviously you get let's let's be honest this is a nutritionally rich program hmm. there's a lot of food for thought here but there's also you're going to learn about cadences you're yeah. going to learn about uh, all kinds of stuff about sentence structure you're going to learn where, where, where phrases like that everybody's using like thought technology like where that started that's right and exactly so that, i mean thought technology come on that's going to be the i mean think about the company that that is called thought technology registered trademark uh, you and i should Yes. Well, we'll anyway. We'll talk to the lawyers <laughs> after we get our grilled cheese uh, truck off the ground. Our hydroponic grilled cheese startup. Not technology registered trademark, but yeah, exactly. Like, like uh, we because we have never had a guest on this program. What is the primary way that two people interact? Right, it's conversation and the and the cadences, the back and forth, the fact that you know knowing when to uh, when to zig and when to zag. So. Like all of a sudden, I got this weird feeling that it might not just be that someone in the future is um, listening to our podcast after we're dead, but in fact that we may become prototype AI uh, personalities. Hmm. The the the, uh, the the front faces because right once you once you've developed that technology and it's working, you're going to be starved for enough data to construct a, a full personality. Right. Right. And you're never going to have enough of them. You're never going to... Because you don't want them to all be this. You don't want to feed them all encyclopedias. Yeah, they're not going to the, be the same. You're going to want... Obviously, uh, most people are going to want Scarlett Johansson. Mm. But there are going to be people who want, you know, a, a, an AI friend who is a middle-aged... Um, Candidate for uh, city council. Yeah, a middle-aged guy who's uh, just, just trying to figure stuff out. So you're saying, like, it could even be in 15, 20 years, you might be somebody's Samsung phone. Yeah, right, right. At least, I mean, it's a start. Yeah, right. And, and, and the, the, the big question is, will we have any control over that? Or will it just be one day, you know, they, they, they pitch my voice up uh, uh, two clicks and they, uh, you know, they put a flanger on you. And they're like, no, no, no. That's got nothing to do with those guys. That's, uh, that's an AI we've been working on. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's a Banksy kind of thing. You take it, you turn it, you make it a little bit different. And now you've uh, it's transformative art, right? You take it, you turn it. Mm-hmm. That's a thought tech. That is that. You know what? That's the motto of Thought Technology uh, Inc. You take it, you turn it. <laughs> Taken and turned. Uh, boy, <clears throat> suddenly this feels like a lot more responsibility. I feel like I mean I want to be myself because I want my AI to be you know cohesive, mm-hmm. but I feel like maybe I should go easy on the dick jokes. Well, but uh, that may be that th- you mean you're scrolling through a list of of ten thousand possible AI friends. And it's like, you know, middle-aged guy, middle-aged guy, middle-aged guy. Oh, middle-aged guy with some dick jokes. Mm-hmm. That seems like a good friend for me. I could put a flanger on that. Mm-hmm. Middle-aged guy from Ohio, spent a lot of time in Florida. <laughs> Makes some dick jokes. Sometimes hard to parse exactly what he means. <laughs> Cl- I'm going to try it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it on. Click. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's possible. Mm-hmm. The, the the pro the, the problem the problem of um you know the problem of self awareness both th- that our podcast has become self aware and also that you and I have too much self awareness is that especially in my current uh in my current pursuits self awareness we've talked about this for mm-hmm. years is a major disadvantage um. You know, I think the number one reason that Hitler was so successful is he had no self-awareness. And it was only that he, and, and, and then it ended up being his downfall, 
his lack of self-awareness. Oh. But, but for 10 years there, it really served him well. I was talking to my daughter about this yesterday. You were talking to your daughter yesterday about Hitler's self-awareness? Well, yeah, pretty much. I was just t- talking about, like, you know, you mean, I mean, just, no, I'm sorry, this is just it's a fact, but I mean, you know, you know, think how much better he would have done. This is a whole other show, so I, I shouldn't even introduce this, but think how much better that guy would have done if he hadn't tried to go into Russia. Think how different that game would have been. He could have he held his own pretty damn good against everybody if, he, if he'd been a little more self-aware and said, you know what, this is good for now. Let's, let's rest for a couple of years. Let's build things up a little bit. But wasn't that a huge, wasn't that a huge problem? Was that he was like, oh, I'll just waltz in there. Just send some dudes over there. I'll walk, walk into the tundra and uh, it'll all be good. If he had stopped in Czechoslovakia, we'd be living in a different world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible to say it. It's terrible to say, like, you know, all these people want to go back in time and kill Hitler. It's a, a very small minority of people that want to go back in time and advise him to just be satisfied with Prague. Um, um, should never have invaded Poland. That was that was, and then Russia. Come on. The, the other thing, what you're saying though, uh, in talking about your current pursuits, um, it's it's interesting to think about somebody who is really good at sounding informal and off the cuff and un, not unself-aware, but not sounding... Because here's... Okay, what's the worst? The worst is that you start thinking about what you're going to say. You think about it too much, and you think about how it's going to sound, and now you sound like a weasel. Mm-hmm. You have to be... It seems to me like you have to be able to, whether it's just your bullet points or whatever, but with growing sophistication as a candidate, it seems like you've got to get fast at sounding natural without sounding like you're trying to sound natural. Well, yeah. And the problem is that <clears throat> I already sound natural but that isn't really what people want. They want you to sound natural, but not really. This is why stand-up comedy is so daunting to me. When I watch, you know, stand-up comedy is something I'm I, I enjoy a lot when it's done well. But I I've, I find it really scary because if you think about what's involved in coming up with those bits and refining them and listening to the tapes and getting to where you know whatever where Louis C.K. can come out and make a joke that sounds like he he just said something accidentally and then make a joke about how he said it accidentally, but that's all part of the bit. And how do you do that without sounding like you're reading off a sheet? Like that takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness. Yeah. But the more you do it, the less you hope you sound like you're self-aware that you're doing a bit that you wrote. Well, and this is the this is the back to the underused question. Like, uh, none of that appeals to me, and I don't know whether the fact that I, I don't know whether and I and and I suspect that this is true when you talk to stand-up comics, like you know, uh, Paul F. Tompkins and I had kind of a fight one time. Not a fight, but like a you know. Uh, a, it wasn't. It wasn't like friendly sparring. If you, if you guys had a real fight. I don't think we'd have Paul F. Tompkins around anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, Paul's a Paul's a big guy. You know, he and I are the same. Compared age. to what? About this. He fits big, in your pocket. He's a big guy compared to say the uh, like uh, Fivel the mouse. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, but uh, but I think I think what he was trying to say in the in our uh, in our like uh, minor disagreement was that. He didn't like that either. You know, that, that be, being a stand-up comic is, is not dependent on liking it. Uh, you do it anyway, right? You, right and it's, that, it's a craft. Yeah, and this is the thing about everything, right? You don't – it's very – it's like if you are seven and a half feet tall and, um, and have big lungs and a big heart – 
you have a job waiting for you in basketball, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you like it. Hmm. And I wonder how many of us have spent our lives being confused that we don't seem to like the, um, the things that we're either natural at or the things that we're pushed into. Oh, I think it's huge. And, and then, you know, and when you, when you think about people that are a success at, at stuff, I think it's probably a small portion of them that are, that genuinely would say like, from the moment I started, I knew that, you know, not just that I knew that I wanted it, but that I liked it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to be a stand-up comic. I knew that I wanted to. But the prospect of listening to myself be a bad stand-up comic on a tape mm-hmm. in order to get better at being a stand-up comic, you might as well just put, pour salt in my eyes. Yeah. It, and part of it also is um, that, you know, there's – I think that people concatenate uh, too many different aspects of a career or a, whatever you can call it, a job and interest and avocation. We're like, I, you know, I always think it's important to distinguish between things like what it is you want to do, what it is you want to be, uh, what it is you like doing, like how do you like spending your time, mm-hmm. and what do you like having made. And I don't think there's that many people where all of those always line up all the time. And that's what throws people off where they, let's say you wanted to be, I mean, there's probably a lot of stand-up comics that originally wanted to be a basketball player, right? But like, you don't have the height, you don't have the hands, you don't have the lungs, you don't, you know, but you find that there's this thing that you kind of can do, or you find yourself sort of falling into. I think that's true for so many jobs. Yeah. And, but, you know, I think the thing a lot of people overlook is what you're describing, which is like being a stand-up comedian is not just being funny and getting girls on the road. It's a lot of, like you say, listening to yourself be a not very good stand-up comic on the road to being less bad, which is yeah. just intolerable. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's weird though. Like, like with like you and me, like, I don't, I don't get stage fright exactly. I like being in front of people. I like doing stuff. I feel like I really thrive you know, when I'm doing whatever in front of people, but what a, what a weirdly unnatural thing to do, but like it, it works. It, like, it makes sense. It's like, I, I, I really like doing it, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think you're, I think you're onto something though, in terms of the, the being underused, because it's, so if, if you want something that's way out of reach, that you never even attempted to do. Now I'm getting into another show here. But like, if you're doing this thing that's way out of reach and not even close to anything you've ever done or made before, and you don't understand enough about the process to know whether you're on the right path or or making the right mistakes, even it's mm-hmm. like how how would you even know that that's just a recipe for disaster? I I remember the first time I was introduced to Richard Feynman, um, the, the phys- physicist. The physicist. The first time. I remember the first time. Oh, oh, you mean his work? I remember my first time. Yeah, no, I was never personally introduced to him, but introduced okay. to him as a as a character, introduced to his writing. Yeah, and you know he was very he was very adept at presenting himself as someone who had who was who, who was kind of fully realized. And there was obviously something crazy about him. Um but th- but th- his self-presentation of somebody who not only is a Nobel Prize winning physics genius but also a safe cracker and a and a you know a competitive archer and a ladies man and a you know and a and a break dancer and a, you know, and a, a Finnish carpenter you know he and you meet you meet people like that who um who have a lot of pride in themselves and 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 are very accomplished without without question 
I remember reading his books at an impressionable age and feeling like, you know, that that was the standard, even as I recognized that was the standard of, of like human realization, like personal realization. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time, also realizing that m- probably I would not enjoy uh, him as a personal friend or, you know, that over time he would be wearing and, and that there was something false also about his um, self-promotion, I guess, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then later on, there was a guy I knew who uh, used, was like a punk rock uh, house squatting gutter punk guy that was a friend of mine. And he and I were party buddies back when party, right in that period where party stopped meaning fun time. Mm. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, we're going to a party. Oh boy, it's a party. And then it's like, no, we're partying. Like when partying became a verb. Yeah, right. It is not, we're, we are not, this isn't fun anymore. This is like serious business. <laughs> and at a certain point, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't see him for a couple of weeks. And then he shows up and his head is shaved and he's wearing like all natural fiber clothes and he looks very serene and i was like hey man what the you know like what's up and he's like i decided that my life was on the wrong path and i'm going to um i'm going to tibet and i'm going to pursue the you know i'm going to i'm going to get on the right path and by by which he meant like going the going the whole hog tibetan buddhism whoa and I was like, what? Does that mean you don't want to um, like go get baked and play video games? And he was like, I do not. And he kind of like sailed out of my life on a, you know, on a kind of magic carpet of, uh, of like uh, whatever, stacked up flip-flops or however it is you make that journey. Mm-hmm. But before he made that, change i knew him to be like one of those like hippie punks who was really super righteous about things but also was maybe the most misogynist person you'd ever met you oh, know yeah that's a type you, you know the type i know the type where it's like you are super duper righteous but you are such a dick to your girlfriend and to every woman i know that there is something very broken in you and i do not believe i do not believe um and you know and he sailed out of my life i've never seen him again but Presumably, um, he you could also you could have also followed that path to self actualization, hmm. and he might have even addressed the the uh, the bad dog inside of him. But I'm sitting here now, and I I find it very difficult to look in the mirror and address myself like, "Hello." I am looking at you now and we are trying to decide what to do with ourselves and what to do in life. Like I'm checking in, I'm checking in with you, you, I'm looking at you and you are me. Um, you well, know, it's I like find you, you talking to the, you, the world sees. 
Well, no, I mean, I fi- like trying to talk to, trying to get out of the place where I'm talking to myself inside my head. All right. Oh, that's hard. That's harder than it sounds. Right. And then actually recognize that I'm talking to, a, you know, a living being who is halfway through the, the normal lifespan and is trying to do good and trying to do good at a multitude of levels, trying to do good for other people, trying to do good for myself, trying to do good for the people that love me, trying to, you know, be a good neighbor, trying to be a good driver, trying to, you know, like all these things. And it's very easy to sit for hours and hours and hours talking to myself inside my, uh, you know, my little Plato's cave. But to really just stand in front of a mirror and say, you know, like, all of this, all of these multitudes of worlds are happening just inside me and I am alone in this room and now I am really trying to actually like have some sympathy for this person I recognize in this reflection. Oh, it's excruciating. And I feel like right now I need it. I feel very alone right now in this, in my campaign, you know, that there's what, once you have enjoined this world, there isn't any, you, I I can't take a break. You know what I mean? Like I can't go back to my normal life for a couple of days. Well, from a practical standpoint, you're kind of deep in the, in the slog at this point, right? Deep in the slog. And a lot of people that, that are helping me are, you know, they're, they're, it's very easy for people to be like, well, I, you know, the candidates just got to go do the things. So anyway, I'm going to go back to my life for a while. And if he needs me, he'll reach out or, you know, a lot of, a lot of people helping the campaign, but it can't be a full-time job for them. And it's, it's, it, it's very easy for three or four days to go by where, where every one of the 20 people that has pledged to help me kind of feels like the other 19 are probably picking up the slack while they go do a thing or where they, you know, they have to do their normal job or they go tend to their family. And in fact, all 20 of them are doing something else and three or four days go by and I'm just, um, you know, I have all these little events I have to do that stack up six a day. But then I get, I, I, you know, no one is minding the store of the, of the, that realm of the imagination, right? No one is minding the store of that place where I wanted to run a campaign that was very different. And I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to leave this appointment that ends at two and make it to that appointment that ends at two forty-five. And, and you're, you're end up become, become being the one reliable person on the one man team. I'm, you know, I'm the only, I'm, I mean, I'm the only person that is, that has to do everything or that has to be at everything. And that makes sense, but I'm not used to reaching out to people at, at a, at a personal emotional level, even, uh, even when nothing is at stake or even at, at the uh, best of circumstances, you mm-hmm. know, it's very hard for me to say to the three people who love me the most, can I have a hug? And so you know, exceptionally difficult to recognize that I am emotionally taxed and confused and, you know, and struggling to keep the things that matter to me in focus as 
my daily routine turns into this cycle of things that don't especially matter to me but need to get done. Right. And it's uh and so so I need to I need to be able to look into the that mirror and say like hello we are you and I me and then this reflection of me that's the only the only way I know to confront myself in this different way. Um, you know, like I'm on your team at least like there's one person in the room, but I am on your team and the, you know, the, the, the reflection in the mirror just wants to get away. <laughs> it does right. not want, it doesn't want to be talked to that way. And it just wants to, you know, it's eyes alight on the first shiny thing in the room that it can, it can go to and, and start to play with You're like, Oh shit, there's a pair of scissors. You know, I haven't sharpened those scissors in a while. <laughs> it's also, um, any, anytime, um, I feel like anytime I try, I try to find some, mm, I don't want to make it sound dire, but you know, like anytime you want to try and some, find some relief from how you feel, especially how uh, relief about how you feel about who you are. Like there are these different roads that you can take, including things like talking in the mirror or, you know, any example of something like that. The trouble is like, if if you don't do that when things are going okay or when things are going well, uh, it can make it feel a little chancy to do that when you're not feeling well. You, <laughs> right. It seems like, like you know, the thing is, like, it's easy. It's easy to like. I have an interest in things like mindfulness and things like that. It's it's uh, it's easy to get easy. It's um, attractive to to think a lot about mindfulness when things are going poorly. It's not as attractive to think about it when things are going well because if things are going well, well, that's the entire point of the mindfulness problem. Yeah. Is that like you you're not noticing. Um, the little barometric changes uh, throughout throughout your life and, and throughout even a given day, and so like right when you're at the point where you go, this guy needs a pep talk, or uh, you know, or whatever, you look and you go, wow, who's who's that old failure? Yeah, too late now. <laughs> well, and the thing is, the har- it's way harder for me because I have tried numerous times in my life when I've done something well to go. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, into the you, bathroom. You've always said you're not. You're. You feel like you're not good at not even resting on your laurels. Like you have trouble even enjoying like a moment of nominal victory. Even a moment. You know, you walk off the stage at a triumphant performance, and I walk in, and I look. I, I just started using the second person rather than the first. The, you walk off the stage at a, and it's like no. There have been moments in my life when I have walked off the stage or have walked out of the the interview or out of the the uh, uh, the test or whatever and walked immediately into the bathroom and stood there and looked at myself in the mirror and said, you did a good job. That was good. You did good there. And the reflection in the mirror squirms uncomfortably and wants to get out of that situation even more than when, you know, because I think the impulse is the same mm-hmm. to say like, you know, you're okay. You did good. Like I see you. I'm acknowledging that you did well, and I just don't. I don't know how to receive it. I don't want to hear it. And so, yeah the the number of opportunities uh, on the campaign trail to walk out of a thing and say like, "Wow, that was a lot better than I expected. That went really well." Um, that that happens every day too. But the nature of campaigning is always like, what was the last good thing you did? And if it was longer ago than 30 minutes, it's mm. in the past. And 
so I'm, I'm already pretty bad at stacking up accomplishments and saying like, I'm doing well, I'm a good person. And, uh, and in this, you know, in this world where it's just like you, I walk out of an interview with a, with some democratic organization, you know, I went to an interview the other day with the King County Democrats, which is a board of directors of about 20 people from every legislative district in King County. So this is like above the courting various district groups. It's yeah, this is now, but it's I mean, the big show, it's the big show, but it's also like I, when a voter is reading their voter guide and it says endorsed by the 32nd district Democrats, the 43rd district Democrats, the King County Democrats. I don't know how a voter parses that or, or measures it or, you know, it matters to people that are members of those groups, but those are, you know, I don't, and I don't even know how much, but like I went to this meeting and it was a great meeting. Everybody really responded well to me. I felt at home and, and, and on top of the, you know, like, like a water ski boat that's up on step. I was just like, I had gotten above the waves and was just skirting across the surface of the lake and, and people were nodding emphatically and it was a great conversation whether or not they endorsed my endorsed me i have no idea but left that meeting went immediately to another meeting where i just felt completely out of my body and trying to give a speech to a room full of people that that i couldn't gauge and they weren't really looking at me they were all uh. playing with their salads and you know when i get home that evening like what am i what am i thinking about i'm definitely not sitting and going like well you did great at the king county democrats i'm just thinking like ugh <laughs> there's nothing worse than standing than giving a speech that you don't quite ha- that you don't quite nail in front of a room full of people that are playing with their salads <sighs> and you're just like why am i why would i even go to an event like that but the thing is you never know you never when walking in the door i don't know enough about any of these organizations to know which ones are going to be you, great you have to take all of bad. those i mean not to put pressure you already know this but like you have to take, take each one of those more seriously than the last because you never know it's like it's almost like when you're starting out performing and doing gigs like even though you you have five shows in a row where it's the bartender and a friend like you never know this could be the show where somebody in the audience is a booker or somebody who writes for the local paper you've got to be playing to the last row regardless of how you feel because you don't even you don't even know how important it could be but you always well, have to treat it that seriously, right? And it's precisely analogous because when you are young, you really and, and when I was starting out in music, I really felt like every show I had to take that seriously because you never knew which one was going to have Jonathan Poneman there. And then one day I played a show and Jonathan Poneman was there. And he came up to me after the show and offered me a recording contract. And it felt like one of those uh, it felt like being discovered at the at the malt shop and yet i never did sign that record contract and i never did that and it and i know a lot of people that did sign a record contract that was offered to them by jonathan poneman and most of those people it didn't um you know uh, it didn't change the fact that they are now working somewhere else but you know there are those there so over time in rock and roll, you learn that the idea that 
something life-changing is going to happen at any one particular show is a fallacy. And that really it's all the shows together, all huh. the great shows. Because, <laughs> because they're, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of... Uh, it's sort of a counterpart to the argument against the great man theory of history where it's really not about Napoleon. It's about the, the forces that are, you know, the forces that work to create Napoleon and the, the human forces working all the time. And Napoleon is kind of irrelevant compared to the passage of time. And I don't agree with that critique of history, but in my own experience, like I, I was on my way to South Africa in um in 1998 to i was given the opportunity to go study at the university of cape town and to do and to write a book about the truth and reconciliation committee that i was studying at the time and i was going to go with my mentor jim klaus and it was going to be this like profoundly life-changing academic trip and in the three or four months leading up to leaving for Cape Town, uh, where I was, you know, I had all my ducks in a row, and Jim had kind of tasked me with this thing that I was going to write. I, that the book I was going to try and write was going to be a book about these American students trying to understand and perceive the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and what it meant. And then my band, the Western State Hurricanes, got invited to South by Southwest. And South, you know, going to South by Southwest was that, was a, that was such a big deal back then. Such a lofty dream. That was like a height of the year. There were band, I remember around the same time in Tallahassee in the like the early, especially in the mid '90s. It was like that was you talk about the big game. Like if you got invited to go to South by Southwest, like that was that was a, like a benediction. You were going to the show. Yeah, right. This was this was your. I mean, it was in some ways it was almost like the, like your Ed Sullivan show, where like it may not you know being invited is big enough, but it could be potentially career changing. Yeah, and you had to make that decision. Yeah, wow. And I and I went to I went to Jim, and I was like, I got invited to go to South by Southwest with my band. You know, I've been in bands now for for six years, and and this band is finally taking off, and this is one of these once in a lifetime chances. And he was like, well. You know, Cape Town will always be there. I'll always be there for you. You know, I make make the decision you need to make. You can you can go to Cape Town and come back and you know do your band, or you can go do your band and then we'll go to Cape Town later. And I went to my bandmates and I described the situation, and two of the three bandmates, one one of my bandmates said. You should go to Cape Town. You know, South by Southwest will always be there. We'll be there for you when you get back. The other two guys said, this is our one chance. <laughs> I think by process of elimination, you just, you just, you just right? clarified the supportive member. <laughs> right? Right? Remember who the supportive member was. Mm -hmm. And I remember. The other two guys were like, this is our one chance. And if you go to Cape Town, we're leaving the band. Oh, shit. And so, you know, I agonized over it. And I decided... I, you know, the academic path will be there for me. I have to pursue this opportunity. You know, you don't, you don't get asked to go up to the majors 
an infinite number of times. And you it's can, so much less. It's so much less abstract. I mean, especially may, maybe at that age, it's like this is not abstract at all. No. Like the going going to South Africa. Not not that there's any. I mean, obviously that's huge, but it's a little bit more abstract. And the idea of your band, like this is the moment. Like if you pass up that opportunity for your band, it's going to seem bananas to just yeah. throw that away. Is how it probably felt. Yeah. Right. And I so I went to South by Southwest. It was an in, it was interesting. It was the first of nine consecutive South by Southwests I attended. And, um, but immediately upon returning from that South by Southwest, the two guys that said that, uh, that they, you know, that this was our big shot, both quit the band. And I never did go to South Africa and I never did, you know, uh, as you probably know, I did not write a book about the truth and reconciliation committee. And so that feeling like this was the moment I went to nine more South by Southwest or I went to eight more South by Southwest and every one of them felt like it could be the moment and none of them were. And I think maybe if I were in band of horses, there would have been a show that you could point to that was like, that was the moment where it all started to go. But the fact is that band of horses, if it hadn't been that show, it would have been the next show because they, that because Ben is a great songwriter and that, they were going to make that sound. It didn't, it, it wasn't that they got discovered. It was that they were good enough that they made it all the way. And so anyway, it feels like that in running for office too, that every one of these events, as you walk into it, you feel like, you know, Oh my God, there, you know, the former governor could be here and this could be the moment that it all turns. But the fact is, no, you just have to go to all of them and, if you're going to if you're going to catch on with people and if they're going to like you no one meeting is the moment it's it's the it's the the composite of having performed all these tasks and having spoken all these times that that either reveals you to be the 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 one that people are looking for or reveals you to not be that one you just uh, blew a huge hole in, in, in one of the great myths in a way that I've never thought of quite this clearly. Um, uh, you know, I, I've always – I think we've talked about this here. But, I, you know, you always think about all the times you're waiting to arrive, right? I know we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll, you know, someday I will arrive and you'll know that you've arrived. And, of course, anybody who ever has arrived starts to really realize that you never really arrive. As you famously said in one of our first interviews, even Bono has a boss. Like, there's <laughs> always somebody above your station that you're trying to, if not impress, at least please. But, like, the, the – it's almost like the opposite of arriving. It's like there are you, – you grow up feeling like there's a handful of chances that you might get to really make something happen in a way that is – you know, I think the subtext is that it's something that, that won't undo. Like when I get this break, then it's just going to be a rocket to the top. When right. the, the truth is that like those chances may come along, but alongside each of those chances are like 10,000 opportunities for everything to unravel. And like you, you, those are the ones in some ways it sounds so depressing, but I think it's kind of true. Like you're really facing the 10,000 times. Every time you walk out there, you're facing the beginning of an unraveling in some ways. That's, mm. that's the reality of it. Mm. Mm. It's like, you know, the arrival doesn't stick. Well, right. And it just, and, and it just leads to more expectations. So many, there are so many, so many events on the, on the, in the two months I've been actively campaigning for office. So many events where I walked out of a thing and I was like, if the election were held today, and it were only and it only involved the 45 people in that room <laughs> i would 
you know, I would win this office. And the 45 people in that room are, you know, they, they are important people in the process. But the election isn't today. It doesn't involve just those 45 people. And no one can anoint you. You can be appointed to public office, which is a crazy thing. Uh, but for the most part, if you are, you know, if if you want to be like a legitimate elected person, there's no shortcut because the election is just it's just one day, and you do everything you can up until that day, and then I mean, think about the elections we've watched as passive viewers or even engaged viewers. Where it's like, I mean, the last election between uh, Romney and Obama, even though it turned out to be a total um, sweep, like going into that day. Sure. I mean, even in that week, it did not look like it. Didn't look like it and didn't feel like it. And, and, and a lot of pundits were calling it the other way, like until, until, their, the, until Obama's name was written in their blood on the wall. <laughs> and you just go... Wow, like there's it there it's just never a thing you can sew up. Um if it's at all competitive. I mean there are races all the time where the, it's just sewed up from the beginning there's never a challenge, but for me in this race there's nothing guaranteed about it and people say all the time to me on the you know when I'm out in the world they're like, "Well, you've raised a lot of money, you know, it's all it's it's a sure thing that you're getting through the primary." And it's like, <laughs> "I don't think it's a sure thing." Right. And and the and the danger of it is that that feeling in other people where they say, "Oh, you've raised a lot of money." It's it's also a way for them to say like, "Well, you don't, you know, I support you, but you don't need my active help." Um because it seems like things are going great for you. And it's like from where I stand, that is not how it feels. And that, you know, that's a very, um, that's, that contributes to this feeling of loneliness. Cause a lot of my, a lot of my people, a lot of my natural supporters, they think things are going great. When I run into them on the street, they're like, it sounds amazing. I saw your name in the newspaper. Things are, things are going amazing. And I just feel like uh, completely abandoned in some ways because people are like, oh, things are going good. I can go back and do, I can go back to my life. And it's almost like, um, you kind of got at this once when uh, a few episodes ago when you were talking about going in and, and visiting with the uh, district Democrats and like you were you would all kind of start to commiserate with other candidates. Mm-hmm. It's almost like those are the only people that you can really, really talk to about this would be your competitors. They are. They are. It's like getting divorced and having it be the loneliest year of your life. And the only person you could hope could even understand what you're going through is the person who's divorcing you. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and and so and and so in that. Um, there is a lot of fellow feeling between people running for office, but I, but it, it it's it couldn't be more exaggerated how little I resemble them in in some ways. Really, still. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you 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 feel that way. Yeah, because because they all. I mean, if you go, I, I did this the other day. I went and and went to the Wikipedia page for the Washington state legislature. And I just started reading the biographies of all the, all the current people in the legislature, just getting a a picture of them. And 
I mean, the stock biography is graduated with a degree in public in uh, political science. Went immediately to work at a nonprofit. Became the director of that nonprofit. Then became the executive director of a different nonprofit. Then worked for a while as a as a on the campaign of a candidate who either won office, at which point they became their that candidate's legislative aide, or that candidate lost and they went back to the world of nonprofits. And then, you know, and then they did and and, and at no point does it ever feel cynical, right? Every one of those jobs and that pursuit of a career path, like all those jobs are are fantastic and people are doing them, I think genuinely like motivated by a desire to to help. And those nonprofits are across a wide spectrum, like helping the homeless, uh, uh, houses for humanity, medical care, you know, across the spectrum of like concerned, concerned citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at a certain point from their, from their position at one of these places, then they first run for office at which point it becomes clear that it's been a path. It's a, it's a career path. They've been working toward that, like the, doing the work of getting to that point for, for years. Yeah, and I cannot know, I don't know enough of them really, really personally to know how many of them at 18 years old said, one day I'm going to be a, a representative, and the path to that is this. Is this. You know, I mean, if you, do, if you graduate with a degree in political science, you are you have some awareness of what you're doing right and so you know and, and graduate with a degree in political science and immediately join uh, the nonprofit world like you you're you're conscious of of those steps but i can't know how much each one of these people individually is pursuing this over the course of time and this is how you get there but in meeting them on the campaign trail you know i don't feel um uh they let's just say that they that this group of people is not characterized by their ribald sense of humor <laughs> uh nor by their worldliness really they're you know they're capable of talking about all of the uh, all of what are agreed are the challenges facing our city today but they're not capable of talking about it outside of of what the agreed upon corral of, of issues is or corral of notions. I had a sitting city councilman who is a likable person say to me the other day, he was like, you know, the thing about you is, uh, he said, I, you know, I hope this isn't unsolicited advice. And I was like, are you kidding me? Consider it solicited. I'm soliciting it. What? And he's like, the thing is nobody knows what you're going to do. Like this opponent of yours, like I may disagree with him, but I know when he gets the job, I know what he's going to do. Uh, uh, this guy, I know what he's going to do. This uh, uh, woman, I know what she's going to do. And nobody knows what you're going to do. So how can we, uh, how can we choose you? And I said, uh, I mean, uh, my sense is that 95% of the things that come across a city council person's desk were completely unforeseen. 
that 5% of the things you know are going to happen, but there's a police scandal or suddenly shell oil uh, brings a drilling rig into the harbor or there's a, a, an economic crisis or a snowstorm or, you know, they're like so much of the job is reacting to things that nobody anticipated. I would imagine that, that nobody knows what anybody's going to do. And he said, yeah, that's right. But the only way we know how to choose is if you have demonstrated like consistency in what you are going to do. And then from that, we extrapolate what you're, what, what you would do in a, uh, in unforeseen circumstances. And I'm like, that is a really, uh, I see, I see what you're saying, but it's, it seems like a really bad, bad because, it, because what it, because what it doesn't do is account for a person's flexibility or, morality or um, curiosity all it, all a voting record is is a measurable set of data that you can you know you can put up against your voting record and see what the differences are and know and be able to put a like a points rating on is this guy more liberal than me less liberal than me is he well, and given that it covers things that happened in the past, it's not even that useful for what somebody's going to do next. It's more useful for saying, like, I think it's it's more useful as a negative than as a positive mm-hmm. a voting record, right? Because you because you can say, well, I I don't like the way this person voted on all of these things. Because even if you do like the way this person voted on most of these things, that's no indication of what they're going to do next. Yeah, and 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 I understand that that picking some picking somebody for public office based on you know, I think to, I think about Ross Perot, and when Ross Perot first entered that race in '88, he was a guy that a lot of us naturally would have would have uh, not had anything to do with because he was a Texas oil guy and an outspoken. You know, it seemed like he had pearl handled revolvers and was a was a um, you know a a real rogue. It's so funny at first how much he appealed to people for being down to earth mm-hmm. and just so obviously sensible. Like, yeah. remember, like, cause on the one hand, you go, well, this is a guy who's like made, I mean, you know, and it's at that time when there's still that emerging idea of like, this is obviously somebody we can trust because this guy built a business. Yeah. But also, he's such a straight shooter at the beginning. At the beginning, it was b- before he was all like a nutty ball salad. Like, everybody thought, this is this guy is the straightest of shooters. You know where you stand with Ross Perot. Yeah. And, and for myself, as a, as a radical uh, at the time, Ross Perot appealed to me because it felt like, the other candidates in the race were just the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy who's going to, for better or for worse, um, be a real human being. And then it turned out that Ross Perot was, um, you know, he was not able to maintain that. Uh, he, and he he lost us all, right? I mean, I really felt like he could have won that presidency if he had just stayed the course but he he lost all of 
he lost all of his whatever people like me that supported him. Well, it was like the more that he talked by the end, the more that he talked, the more you could say, yeah, well, that guy is a straight shooter, but he's a straight shooter about a lot of wackadoodle because he right. started. He started. He would speak so freely in a way that was very, um, very attractive at first. But by the end, he just sounded like he didn't have any filter and was maybe maybe you know needed some kind of medication. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? I mean, am I, I wrong? I, I remember. No. Maybe I'm remembering, remembering Saturday Night Live bits, but I, I just I feel like you know he started out seeming like like this like so many quote unquote outsider candidates they start out really seeming like the answer because they're not talking like everybody else. But then by the end, the fact that they're not talking like everybody else in the long run really makes them stick out. Yeah, and that is that is what I am trying to. You know what I'm facing personally is like I'm the outsider candidate. And the question is, can, can I, as an outsider candidate, be, make a convincing portrayal of an insider candidate and not, lo- and not in the process lose, the, uh, the, lose something crucial about myself? Right. And um, not, not just lose the perception of it, but actually lose something um, in the process, uh, no, you know, not something irrevocable because I don't think, I don't think that, that, that my integrity is something that is, you know, is so, well, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's malleable in that way. But, you know, I, when I entered this, I, this race, I said, listen, I'm not going to run negative. I just want to run on a, on the strength of ideas. And I've described before that I was under a lot of pressure from people in my campaign who knew better to, you know, to attack my opponent. And I had a lot of anxiety about it. And I ultimately said, no, I'm not going to. I just want to run on ideas. And they all kind of shrugged and said, okay, well, let's just run on ideas then. But attacking was what they knew how to do and what they wanted to do. And so when I said, I'm just going to run on ideas, they were like, great, well, then you're the guy with the ideas. So let's have them. And I was also going to six events a day. And so at the end of the day, uh, there was, you know, an expectation that at the at uh, that after giving you know six different speeches that I was going to go home and write two thousand words on this like world of ideas that I was promoting. And when I wasn't able to do it, when I wasn't able to muster just just the the pure energy needed to um, to spitball. There was a there was a, a, a like a deficit a a lack of just voice coming out right there uh, people started to say well you you guys haven't released any position papers you haven't taken a stand on anything and my team I don't you know I don't think that they were punishing me but they didn't know what to do i mean they they would they they knew what to do they they would write up a thing and say my opponent is a is a baby killer and a uh, you know they wanted to swift boat every day and that was what they 
That was what they understood, and that's what everyone is doing. And it's it's so you know people will say they don't like negative campaigning, but what negative campaigning does. It, it strikes me as somebody who doesn't like it but sees it is that it gives you the constant opportunity to reframe the debate yep. uh, in a way that being positive doesn't because it makes exactly. you seem extremely realistic. It makes you seem like you're speaking the truth to power yep. and, and it gives you constantly gives you the opportunity to show why this other person is a bad person yep. without having to say anything at all. And so it starts to rain after 20 days of no rain and the instinct of everybody is to, is to say, you know, let's get a press release out. I support the rain, and more importantly, my opponent is on the record three different times as saying that he wished it would stop raining. My opponent has had very little to say about the rain this week. In 1997, my opponent said that he was sick of the rain. Well, now, in the middle of this drought, who do you want? A guy that's sick of rain, even when we don't have it? Or a guy that loves the rain? John Roderick, we just can't afford your rain thinking. (laughs) And so... So what happened in the last couple of weeks is a couple of different times I was sitting on a, you know, sitting in a chair with a laptop in my lap trying frantically to um, just stay on top of emails or whatever. And somebody came over and said, uh, here's an opportunity to set out a press release. Um, in one case, you know, one of my opponents and the other opponent were debating housing in the newspaper, and I was left out of the conversation. And everybody was in a panic. The, the race is shaping up to be between these two other guys. You're not even in the conversation. And I was like, I'm not in the conversation. I'm over here working on something else. And they were like, you can't afford to not be in the conversation. And so, you know, a couple of different times, their press releases have gone out from my campaign in a tone that uh, that I didn't like that you know that in the in the the context of the political world was mild stuff but but you know just addressed to some imaginary reader who's like where do these two guys stand well i just received a press release apparently you know, this guy doesn't like the rain. <laughs> and, you know, and it, and it left me feeling like a, a, like a film, like there was a film on my tongue, you know, just kind of like, Bleh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the, you know, but in the absence of me generating like candy cane lollipop uh, position papers week after week, that was what, that was what came out. And now I'm trying to, now I'm trying to draw a line in the sand about it and say like, no, run on the strength of ideas or nothing. And uh, I need a shot of vitamin B12 or something, you know? Right. I need a hug. It, I wish I could give you a hug. <laughs> but, you know, it, it makes me think a little bit. I know this is kind of far out, but, you know, there's. There, I think there's a good reason why most product lines will very explicitly – provide three levels of service, you know, in the classic, almost like the three ways you can meddle in the Mm -hmm. Olympics. But like, there's something, I mean, millions of people talked about this, but like, I think there's a reason that that still exists is it clearly frames like how this, how this product works and what it can mean to you and how it can be right for you, regardless of your needs or budget, 
right? If you had 16 options, it would be really overwhelming. If right. there was one option, it would seem inflexible. But like that has become such a, I, I know it's not the same as with candidates, but I'm just saying that's the kind of thing where that becomes, talk about a thought technology. Like that is an entire way of framing your, the way that your product line works. You know, are you, are, you know, which kind of, which level of GM car are you going to get? And when mm-hmm. you get that GM car, you know, what kind of upholstery? And there's all these different ways to like see yourself and your needs reflected in the product offering. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like when you're, when you talk about a political race, the thing is, really, it's really difficult to look at any one candidate on their own um, it, because it is much more complicated. It's so much more. It's so much easier for somebody who's going to write an article on that to be able to say, "Well, like, here's the person with the super clear position that everybody agrees with." Like, yay! It's like you really you have to put people next to each other in order for it to be a campaign in some ways. It's like yeah. you, you have to, I, I mean, I'm not saying you have to, but it, it sounds like I could see the attraction of doing that because it gives you a lot more clarity, you know, but then you become incrementally closer to being a pro wrestler the more you do that. Yeah, and that that is the, you know, that's, I mean, I, I hesitate to say that that's the challenge because there are so many challenges. Uh, if only there were one <laughs> right as if only I could just ma- master one and and honestly like um i'm at the end of every week, I look back and I say, boy, if I had known at the beginning of this week what I know now, I would have done a lot better job this week and that's that's very unusual right in in the course of my normal life, if I ever applied that idea it was always like if i know if i knew two years ago what i know now i would have done a better job over the last two years but it's very seldom in life that you get into a situation where you know every day you get home and you go well i wish i knew at the beginning of today what i know now um and then you go into the next day and it's like well what i learned yesterday didn't really apply today i learned a whole bunch of new stuff that i didn't know and I, I wonder if that isn't always – if that isn't going to be true of this whole race and that on the election day, I'm going to say if, you know, if I – like now I'm ready to run for office. And, I, and other people have said that to me um, that because as part of a way of saying like there's no bad way to run for office if, you, if this is what you want to do because you, ru- you, you run and you win then you won. You run and you lose and you know how to run. Um, None of it really is any, none of it really points to teaching you how to govern. And so, it sounds like horrible. I mean, on the outside, it sounds like horrible preparation for how to govern. It's terrible. Ter- all the habits, so not all the habits. The habit of needing to show up on time and think fast and know how to attract the, and hire the right people is a skill that everybody could use forever. Yeah. But like so much of this mm, down in the trenches stuff, it's it feels no no offense to your occupation, but it sounds like you could become so small and venal, like with, if you, if you really made that part of your life, it must also be a personal struggle to like not turn into something that you don't want to be. It ha- it happens. Um, and I, and I see it, you know, we, we, from the outside, we look at the process and we see these political characters and we, and they they appear to be dripping with corruption because because their behavior is so is often so transparently in the service of um, 
of a pretty narrow group of of a narrow group of people or a narrow group of expectations and that you know that corruption just feels like it's so clear to most of us like ah uh, just you're either corrupt before you run for office or running for office makes you corrupt and from inside i see now that what it is is that if you come from this background you you know a limited number of people and yet you know a limited number of people who who feel very much like they have their finger on the on the pulse of what's wrong right if you are if you spend 20 years as a um you know working at a food bank um and become the executive director of it like you have a a a real sense and not a wrong sense that you are clued in to what's going on in cities because you're dealing with the people who are feeling the brunt of it. But really you, you don't know that many people and you really don't have a very broad picture of the world. And then you get into office and you see the same faces over and over. And because raising money is such a big part of it, you end up going to the, to fundraisers with the same people and you end up on the phone with the same people. And if you don't have a broad picture of the city, it's very easy to feel like, or, you know, or the country, right? It's very easy to feel like that small group of people, which doesn't seem small. It seems really big. It's five, 600 people that you interact with, but that they represent the people. Well, and you know, it's so well, so inside and out that, you know, within that given, like you're an expert, like, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. more about a handful of topics than easily 90% of the population. Which is going to serve you well sometimes and really drive you crazy other times. Let well, alone and, the things you don't know, let alone the things where somebody else knows 90% um, well, more but, than you. But that's the thing. Of those 500 people that you, that you know, every single one of them considers themselves an expert in something. So you're standing, at the, you're standing in, the, <laughs> in the, um, uh, the banquet hall at the Sheraton. And a guy comes up from the Policeman's Benevolent Association. And a guy comes up from the Builder's uh, group, the builders lobbying group, not the Bilderberg group. Then, then the guy from the Bilderberg group comes and then there's the, you know, then there's the nonprofit, you know, the, the, uh, the woman that chairs the Sierra club. And then there's the, and, and so every one of those people represents themselves as representing thousands of constituents. And that's when it gets confusing because you do feel like, you know, everything you're there with the 500 people that know everything and that's when that corruption what appears to the rest of us to be corruption happens because it isn't corruption it's just that you are doing what your friends want you to you're you have these friends and they are asking you to do things and you can and you you never hear from the other side you're not even aware it exists and so you're just helping your friends. It doesn't feel corrupt to you. Especially when I, mean, I think this is this is so true and so painful and so unavoidable in so many places. Like there's there's how you felt at one time, and then there's how you increasingly or how you evolve in your thinking as you more and more realize how it really works. Yeah. Is, is another way to think of it. Where, you know, when you're a little kid, you pick baseball teams and politicians by their looks, right? You're like, oh, I like this uniform, or uh-huh. I like the way this person talks. But you know, you I think 
part of the, the, the dawning series of realizations is, oh, now I see how this really works. Mm-hmm. It really, I mean, to get this internship, it really would have helped for me to have done these other things, but also really knowing the right people would have made all the difference. And, and that feels like corruption if you're on the outside. Mm-hmm. It's just that how stuff really works can be so impossibly complicated unless you're already a domain expert. And if you're already a domain expert, then you already know that it's really complicated and this is how it really works. <laughs> and then you go to the next level and you go, oh, I see. This is how this really works. And even saying that phrase, it sounds like I'm talking about corruption and, and, I'm, and I'm not. It's just that sometimes it is very complicated. The, the, when, you have, when one person who's an outsider on a topic has an idea in mind about how something should change, they usually see that as one or two little steps over a discrete amount of time that can make this thing happen. Yeah. When it, when, and again, now I'm just going to have to guess because I'm not in Congress. But I'm guessing if you're in Congress, and even if you really want something done and think it's important and, and think it's a good thing to do, and how many times is that really, really, the, case, or really the case, you might have to realize, well, I'm going to have to like make this seem like this guy, the senior staff member's idea. Then there's this person over here who I'm going to have to like um, you know groom for six months about this idea, right? I mean, it's, it's rarely as simple as going over and you know. Hey, I got an idea. Let's do this thing for housing. All right, I'm in. Like, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Because there's so many different demands and so many, am I right? I mean, it seems like that once you start the dawning realization of how stuff really works, it never really ends. There's more and more things to understand about how things really work. Well, of, of course. And that is what's so maddening about the process that we, that we use to choose people because the last thing it, I am learning on a daily basis, the last thing anyone wants to hear from a candidate is, you know, every single side of every single argument has some validity to it. And so it isn't ever a question of finding out the truth. It is always a question of figuring out a plan and a process and a, and a method and, and, working toward goals and it, and and you can't just i mean i i had a strange conversation with a with a uh, city council candidate the other day where he said you know he told a story that he had obviously rehearsed for the stump but he also really meant it which was that in his work he had constantly come ag- up against these big money people who were you know who were always doing things that really negatively affected um the people that he served as at his nonprofit. And so he went and looked to see who these big money bad guys gave money to. And when he realized that, that these guys were donating money to city council candidates, that was when he realized he needed to run for office because he needed to get in there and root out that corruption. (laughs) And it's like the most any city council candidate can uh, receive from any donor is 700 bucks. So it's not like, it's not like these guys are buying people with money. It's that they are in relationships with each other because they're big money developers and the other guys on the city council and they, you know, they see each other at the ballroom at the Sheraton. It's never just as simple as it, as, as like this developer's $700 check turned this person that otherwise had integrity into like a slavish, uh, Gollum for him, you know? Uh, and, but, it, but, but it feels like a conspiracy. But it feels outside. like a conspiracy. Yeah. And then you look at General Wesley Clark, who is shilling for a, a, for a fucking grilled cheese truck <laughs> franchise, and you go like, 
but these guys do, you know, like adults, and I'm feeling it too, get to a certain point in their life and they, uh, and they're worried about money. I met Chris Hansen the other day, who's the guy, he, he lives and works in San Francisco, but he's the one that wants to build a sports arena. Oh, okay. For the Sonics and buy the buy buy a basketball team and bring them back to Seattle. What, what is he? What is his background? He's a guy that's our age, and he's a billionaire or a hundreds of millionaire who is who got his money through finance, financial work, which I'm sure was very difficult, very hard work uh, that produced hundreds of millions of dollars for this guy in his forties. And, you know, from where he stands, like he was a kid and he was a fan of the Sonics and now he wants to buy a basketball team and bring it to the city. And it feels like, and there are tens and tens of thousands of people in Seattle that really want this to happen. And I met him and he's a super nice guy. Uh, and he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And there are people that are, you know, and he has, he's a, he's a guy that walks into the room and and all of the normal operators sidle up to him and shake his hand and and you can see that nobody ever tells him any bad news he's you know? a he's a hedge fund manager hedge fund manager right wow um he you can he can just tell by the way he talks and the way he carries himself that he's it, nobody tells him anything bad it's just like paul allen or you know like when you get to be that rich it's not just that you surround yourself with people that give you good news but nobody wants to give you bad news like because there's always the possibility that that um, on your way to the bathroom, you're going to drop $100,000 or something. You know, like <laughs> it's just this feeling that people have when they're around really rich people where it's like, well, I don't want to be the one to give this guy bad news. What if he decides to suddenly start shooting money out of a T-shirt cannon? I don't want to be the I don't want to be the one he hates. And so, you know, he's just sort of he's wafting through life and I'm standing there feeling a little bit like. Uh, feeling I, what I think is a very common feeling at a certain age, which is like, is it, it's too late for me to make a hundred billion dollars as a head fund manager. Like it's too late to do that. And the integrity that used to keep me so warm at night, uh, you know, that blanket is getting worn a little thin and yet it's like it's all I have against the night, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't start investing in, or you can't put your, you can't get on the board of a grilled cheese franchise at this late hour, because, you know, in the end, 150 years from now, somebody listening to your podcast in the in the basement of a library, listening to it on microfiche is going to know how the story turned out. And, you know, they're going to know whether or not you, whether or not you sold out, right? And that's, I, I haven't used the phrase sold out in a fucking decade, but. <laughs> what do you learn from somebody like that guy? Do you feel Which like one? When, well, like, it seems like you're exposed to so many interesting and different kinds of people that are outside of, you know, like like when you would show up for meetings and stuff, 
you know, uh, because of your, your civic interest. You're one kind of character with one kind of focus. Like, what kind of stuff do you learn meeting people like the Chris R. Hansen guy or like other people? Are there, are there bits that you must be just learning a lot all the time from seeing how people operate? Isn't that kind of on your mind? It must be on your mind. Like how, how you conduct yourself, how you think. I mean, are, are, do you feel like you're still evolving in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's deeply on my mind. And this is why I'm standing in front of the mirror and saying like, these are not, these are not things that you normally have to do. Like there, there is absolutely no opportunity for corruption in my world that would, you know, where it would be, where it's some kind of ab scam thing where some guy comes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> some FBI agent from Mexico pretends to be an Arab and gives me a suitcase full of money. The corruption opportunity is this tiny little incremental corruption that, that if you allow in, I think is radioactive. And it's those, it's that little corruption of, well, I said I wasn't going to run negative, but everybody's telling me I have to. And here's an opportunity to kick a guy. And yeah, okay. Right. The little corruption of like, well, I'm, I'm meeting a group of uh, African-American business owners. And so I'm going to tailor my speech to uh, just be about issues that I know they care about and mm-hmm. not be about the issues that are really motivating my campaign. Not to say that those are different, but just that, you know, that, that pandering that everybody expects when I go, when I went in to meet with the union people, like one of them asked me if I was a member of a union and I actually have a application for the musicians union. Sitting but you're, you're meeting desk. them on their turf. It's not like it's not like they're coming. You're you're meeting at Denny's or something. Like you're going in. Like they must have every expectation that you're going to say all the right things. Yeah, and oh, but this is the thing. Six times a day, you meet six different groups of people. Every one of them wants you to tell them what they want to hear, and if you do, little by little, you are letting corruption in, and that corruption becomes radioactive. So when I met with the Chamber of Commerce, <laughs> you know the opportunity to go in there and say, listen, I will do whatever you say is that that's a, that's a very powerful, um, give them the the business friendly vibe. Yeah. That's a very powerful impulse, right? Uh, because you want to please people and they're, then they want you to try and please them and they're powerful and you want their help. So to do what I did, which is to go in and say, listen, you're never going to endorse me and that's fine. But, um, you know, if I'm on city council, we're going to have to find a way to work together. So anyway, peace out. <laughs> um, and, and, and to, you know, and to, and to say truthfully, like you guys are one of the most liberal uh, chambers of commerce in America, but still you're a chamber of commerce. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and if, you know, if, if you are on the Seattle city council and, you believe that the Chamber of Commerce is your constituency, your the your entire constituency, then you're missing you're you're missing a big part of what your job is. And it's uh, like it's almost like any group you meet with. I, I keep putting in these quotidian terms, but it's almost like yeah, you could think of it in terms of like what would they consider a big win. But when I think about like like how you can tell people are different, it comes down to like what they consider good news. 
is one way to look at it, right? And for them, good news in that case might be something as simple as, well, John Roddick is clearly here to play ball with us. We don't even, all we need to know to get started is that this guy's like amenable to, mm-hmm. to not just working with us, but to potentially, you know what I mean? Like th- that's their, their idea of good news would be somebody who throws all the right shapes about how that relationship is going to be in the future. And yeah. to, to basically, uh, g- give up the, uh, give the idea that like, whatever you guys want is going to probably mostly be okay. What's crazy to me is that no one I have met, you know, and the thing is, I'm not really interacting with voters, you know, I'm, this whole process is just going to meetings with these with labor groups, democratic groups, business groups, and not a single one of these groups with the exception of the Sierra club is really very interested in someone from outside the system coming in with some fresh ideas. That is not what anybody cares about. And in, a, and in 85% of those situations, including very liberal progressive groups, they do not want to hear that. They want to mm-hmm. hear that you're going to do what you're, that you're going to do what they want reliably. Well, like imagine if you worked. If imagine if you worked at a Walmart and a job opened up for an assistant manager. Like, would you want somebody in who's like fresh blood? Like, no, you'd want somebody who's been an assistant manager at a successful Walmart, right? You want somebody and, who's going to come in and already knows how the how the business operates and is already, you know, I don't say compromised, but is already familiar with with as we say how it really works. That is the that is absolutely true, and that is what is crazy because the perception of being on the Seattle City Council is effectively that it is equivalent to being the assistant manager of a Walmart and that it has more or less the same skill sets. And in going into the race, and and it's harder for me to maintain now, but I still do believe it, uh, that that is a terrible way to elect somebody to public office, that the, that the job is not at all like being an assistant manager of a Walmart. And the fact that there's so much energy uh, devoted at the at the start of a campaign to winnowing out all the people who don't understand that that all these groups do believe that that is what the job is you know like that is a, that is a process that is um you know that creates the political world that we see that we that we loathe right you do not want an assistant manager in this job you do want somebody that you don't know what they're going to do you know and and the idea that 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 what you want in public office is somebody who is dependable and consistent is going to get you it's you're going to get the the results that we so often see which is that the laws are made by people with no imagination who have allegiance to the people that put them there and but running against that right 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 requires that you reach out to to the to the voters and so far and what makes me feel so lonely is that the process uh, you know the process of running for office is actually um is actually a process of courting all these groups of people who claim to be intermediaries between you and the voters and if you had a million dollars to run your own campaign, you could sidestep the whole process and just mm-hmm. take out 50 TV commercials a day and just say, hello, voters. And you could hire a, the Goodyear blimp to 
right, right. Fly you, over you the get sea. paper, paper the waterfront. Right, but not having those resources, you know, you do count on the King County Democrats and you do count on the Chamber of Commerce to help you reach people, and and they have a they have a vested interest in saying, you know, in saying as I've heard people say under their breath, like it works to have a you know it works to have a dumb candidate with a smart staff <laughs> that works for us it's been proved over and over dumb candidate smart staff that's a workable arrangement um smart candidate starts to get really problematic and the smarter they are the worse it is for the system i was um talking the other night with some people on twitter about um Roger Ebert and the way that Roger Ebert would review movies. And I, I could never, I couldn't remember this exact phrase, but he said something really interesting a long time ago about, I, I feel like he said something along the lines of that, you know, in, in addressing how it is, people would say to him, like, how could you give this really weird, schlocky horror movie three stars while you give this very serious historical documentary or whatever three stars, you give this Polly Shore movie three stars, whatever, like, how could that even make any sense? And he had a very articulate response to it. There was something, something along the lines of that when he watches a movie, one of the first things he looks at is whether they achieve their intentions. Like it isn't, you know, the thing is that I'm not going to give this one star just because it's a, it's a schlocky horror movie. I'll give this one star because it was an unsuccessful mm. schlocky horror movie. Mm-hmm. So I could never mm-hmm. find that exact quote, but somebody did send me this one quote that I, I don't know why it feels germane here. It's what, it's what Roger Ebert actually called Ebert's law. He said, it's not what the movie is about, but how it is about it, hmm. which feels uh, somehow weirdly germane here. We're like, you know, it, it isn't just that you come up with some list of things you've thought of to say that people will agree with. It's a question of, of how, how you will gov- govern that mm-hmm. it's, it is different. It, it's, it's, it's fundamentally, it sounds like a, like a distinction without a difference, but the way that you are going to conduct yourself and the way you think about what, what new data and my God, we haven't even really talked that much about time, how, no matter what your ambitions are, like you're constantly, there's a clock ticking all the time Yeah, for everything you want to do. Like if you had unlimited time, you could pull off all kinds of stuff, but even the deals you can negotiate with people, the contracts that are involved in things, like all those things have dates on them and you're always dealing with multiples of them at the same time. So regardless of how good your intentions are and how long your list of good ideas is, it really comes down to, doesn't it come down to like how you will govern, how you will think differently about this. Well, and this is the, this is the rub, right? Because it turns out that this is the system and actually it doesn't matter that I'm running. It doesn't matter if I'm smart and running outside the system. If I cannot master the system, then I have failed. Categorically. Well, you know, like... Not not categorically. There is a way to run for office where you are the the principled character um, who has n- no intention of getting elected, but is running just to raise awareness or running to just change the uh, change the agenda of the, what people talk about. Yeah, right. I mean, you can do that, but to to run for office with the intention of winning, you have to figure out a way to. Uh, and and it isn't, you know, like this is the this is the big question. Can you figure out a way to play the game as it is actually played, and also maintain not just the lion's share of your integrity? And that's the 
you know, that's the challenge. Um, and I think I can, I just, you know, I need more help. Right. And I, and so, um, so that's my week right now, right? I need to go out into my week and say to the people who are helping me, I need more help. And I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not mad at anybody. I don't blame anybody, but, but I can maintain my integrity. But if I do, I, I'm not going to get all these, I'm not going to get all these things done. And if I get all these things done in order to maintain my integrity, I need, you know, I need, a. I need more than a hug, right? I need like, uh, I need people that believe in me that are, that are cheering. Well, you know, not to make it too real, um, forgive me for, for popping this, but like, you know, this will go out today. What, what would you, um, if, if, if they're, if it's a, if it's a listener and they want to give you a hug or more, what, 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 what would help right now? Oh, uh, you know, the thing is like on Twitter, people give me a lot of support and people are very supportive of, I apologize if that was a dumb question. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's good. I mean, the, um, I mean, honestly, I'm struggling. I, I, str- I, I, I raised a lot of money at first and everybody said, oh, he's raising a lot of money. He's great. And now I'm struggling to raise money. And that looks bad um, because it seems like my support has evaporated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anybody that wants to can go to, or any American rather, that wants to can go to VoteRoderick.com and donate money to the campaign if they have some line around. Um, that, that always helps. Uh, but also like I need, I need research done. Um, and you know, help like writing position papers. And I know there are a lot of researchers and writers out there. I just don't know how to tap them. Right. Without having a new job of interviewing people for a job. Yeah. Right. And, and just, you know, there are, there are a lot of people uh, who listen, who are like, I would love to write a, a transportation piece on gondolas. And it's like, I actually need one of those. Um, but, but, uh, like getting it all, understanding what I need written and how I need it written and how I need to then actually write it myself is, you know, it's a, it's a major energy, um, you know, it, it would take up all my energy if I weren't also going to six meetings a day. Right, right, right. There's, there's no bottom. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I know everybody wants to, to be engaged in it, and I want that too. And I think the biggest problem is I don't have a gatekeeper. I do have a campaign manager who is scheduling me in these six meetings a day, but I don't have a creative czar. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's next to me and who is actually thinking about the, the positive aspect of the campaign. You almost I think seem like that's you, need an out, you need an outboard brain. I mean, somebody, not just a whiteboard, but, but yeah. somebody who can be there to, um, to be that other face in the mirror in some ways, right? Somebody yes. that you could talk to about these things, help you remember where, where that thread got dropped, how to pick it up, and then how to evolve as this stuff goes along. Right. And that, that's not what a campaign manager does. A campaign manager is more um, like functional campaign related getting elected stuff. Exactly. Get okay. the stuff on the calendar, get the phone calls made. Um, and yeah, what I need, I need three me's, right? I need a me that's like, <laughs> you just go home and write every, uh, write all your crazy shit down and edit it and get it so that it sounds reasonable. Right. 
I will be out um, going to these meetings and shaking people's hands and kissing babies. And then the third me will be eating a sandwich in the bathtub <laughs> and getting all the time he needs, you know, walking around the garden in a bathrobe swinging a scimitar. <laughs> and if the three of the, if those three guys could, you know, could, uh, could partner up. The three wise men. The three, the three wise men, right. Because, you know, they're like, Definitely standards in my neighborhood have declined. Although, I have to say, did I tell you that Gary, I went out and yelled at Gary the other I, night. I didn't, I didn't want to bring it up because I know that's not really, I, I would love an update. It sounds like you, you had to come to Jesus uh, meeting with, uh, with Gary. So it was a warm night. Gary's standing outside of his van. <laughs> so two first of all, the van is still there. Van's still there. Gary's right. standing outside of his van, two o'clock in the morning, yelling into his phone about how the country is an abomination. Abomination. No, it's pretty clever. I, I, that, pretty I didn't know he had, no, I, I, I didn't know he had it in him. I'm not sure I'd heard that before. That's pretty good. <laughs> and uh, about the fourth or fifth time he says it loud, I'm, la- I'm, I'm in bed and I'm like, all right, I've just, I've had it. And I got up and I put on my bathrobe and I stormed across the street and he's standing there in the dark behind the, behind the laurel hedge yelling into his phone. And I said, God damn it, Gary. And he shocked and turns. And I said, I am sick of it. I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you over here yelling in your phone. I'm sick of you living in the front yard of my neighbor's house. I'm sick of you, drunk son of a bitch. I got a little kid over here. And you're out here yelling about Obama Nation. I am done. I am done with you, Gary. And Gary goes, And I said, Gary, you don't even know my name, do you? You do not even know my name. And he said, Jeff. (laughs) And I proceeded to Hmm. read him the riot act for 20 minutes. (laughs) He picked picked the wrong week. (laughs) I just had, I just, I was done. And I, I don't know what he did. He picked the wrong, this was just the, this was the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. And I, I, dressed him up and down. I said, Gary, you have met me 40 times. And the reason you don't remember my name is that you're a goddamn alcoholic. And if you don't figure out a way to quit drinking and get your shit together, you're going to spend the rest of your life living in this van. And that is no way for a man to live. I said, what, what, what when's your birthday, Gary? And he was like, oh, 1968. And I was like, I was born in 1968. You and me, Gary, we're the same fucking age. And I used to, be a dumb alcoholic living in a van. It wasn't even my van. And I don't even want to know if this is your van. You need to get, and he was like, I tried to quit drinking a thousand times. And I was like, you know what? Thousand and one. Try it a thousand and one times, Gary. Because two o'clock in the morning out here, living in this van. How long have you been living in this van? How long have you been living in the front yard of my neighbor's house? And I didn't, I never let him get a word in. I just fucking unloaded. And at the end, I was holding him and petting his hair Whoa! and saying, Gary, you can do it. You can change your life. You can get, you can get through this and get on, get on down the road. You can get your kids back. You just have to fucking take the first step. And he's blubbering. And I said, but in the meantime, Gary, fucking stop yelling about Obama in the middle of the goddamn night 
across the street from my house. If you're going to live in your van, live in your fucking van with the door closed quietly. So. And then you saw him a few days later. So six days later, he come, I, I, I parked the car, I get out of the car, and he's standing there with his hat actually in his hands. And he walks across the street and he goes, hey, John. And I'm like, hi, Gary. And he goes, I remembered your name. I was like, I'm glad. He said, I, the reason I called you Jeff was because my best friend's name's Jeff. And I was like, I'm not interested, Gary. And he said, listen, ever since our talk three days ago, I haven't had a single drink. <laughs> and I said, that was six days ago, Gary. He's like, I have six, uh, yeah, six days ago. Anyway, I mean, when I drink, I'm an asshole. And I was like, yes, Gary, you are an asshole when you drink. But like me, you are also an asshole when you don't drink. <laughs> uh, 